The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Because covenant family is really the way we describe our membership. But we want it to be more than you just being a member of the church. We want to talk about the ways that we deeply love one another. We're deeply committed to one another. And we cannot survive if you just are looking for a connection to a pastor. We are looking to survive because we're connected to each other. And so we are going to try this month as we teach and move to talk about what it really looks like for the next 12 months. Because I know a lot of you aren't going to be here much longer than that. But what would it look like for 12 months for us to commit to pursuing Jesus Christ together? Um, and honoring him and, and all of the tough things that come with that. And so on September 30th, you'll notice in your ministry guide, if you were handed one on the way in, which we hope that you received, if you didn't, please make sure you take one on the way out. But we are having what's going to be our first covenant family meeting of the month of the year uh, at the end of the month. And we'd love for you guys to be a part of that. Um, as well as there's some announcements in here about if you want to be baptized, ways that we do that. We don't have the tank set up every Sunday, but we would love to do that for you. If you want a warm baptism, we need eight-hour notice. If you want a cold baptism, we can do it in about 15 minutes. So uh, we would love to, uh, to know that, but also be willing to do whatever. I was really inspired recently watching some baptisms actually in Russia, of all places, where they were literally holding them by the arms, cutting a hole in the ice and dropping them in the ice and pulling them up really quickly. And I'm like, yes, bring that to Baltimore. We need to be committed to our faith. Uh, and so watching that was uh, a true joy. And uh, I haven't asked Lana yet if that's the way she was baptized. Um, but uh, are you laughing because you were baptized that way? Uh, all right. I think you lived in a little bit warmer part of the country. Um, all right. Well, our, our scripture reader, come on up. I think it's Lee, please. Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34 to 38. And I invite you all to read along. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. Really powerful uh, understanding of that scripture. Um, we are starting this series today called Harmony, and we are looking for what it actually would be for you and I to walk as one. What would it look like for us to truly be in step not only with each other, because it's very easy for a group of people to be in step with each other, but yet to be out of step with Jesus Christ. And so what would it look like for us together to be walking after the Father and the Son and the Spirit and let that be the unity behind us? So the next couple of weeks is, are going to be framed around this talk. So I'm going to take my time today. Some of you are like, oh, man, worship was just getting good, and then we quit. That's my fault. I asked them to hold on a song or two this Sunday so I could have more time to teach. <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, that's terrible for a pastor to say. Um, but just know this is the shortest one of the four. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So... The next couple of weeks, it's going to be really hard 
because not only are you going to disagree with me in what I talk about today, many of us, you're going to disagree with me next week, you're going to disagree with me the next week, and then you're going to disagree with my wife the next week. So we're going to be going through a series we should cause disagreement, but we decided to go opposite of that and call it Harmony. Um, because we do feel like that at the end of the day, it's not about what we believe, it's about Jesus. And we want to talk to you about what we believe is true in Jesus, because true truth in the New Testament has a capital T. It's a person. And so we're going to try to frame that the best we can so that you and I can walk forward together through some very difficult topics. We're going to be talking a lot in the next two weeks about our sexuality how we actually form ourselves sexually. We're going to be dealing with, you'll hear me use words like pornography, self-gratification, which I'm, I don't know if how many kids are in here, but there are words that deal with self-gratification that we'll be talking about, as well as homosexuality, heterosexuality, gender identity issues. We're going to be talking about a lot of things in the next couple of weeks because there are important discussions in our culture today, and we need to know what would it, what would it look like for us to follow after Jesus into the controversial time topics of our day. So when my family moved here 10 years, a little over 10 years ago, um, we moved into Butcher's Hill. And when I moved into Butcher's Hill, I had read up to that point in time pretty much every book that had been printed on church planting. We had been to school to become good ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ. But I was not mentally, emotionally, and physically prepared for moving into Baltimore City. And the the reality that in the midst of Baltimore City, the, the mentality about Jesus was drastically different from places I had served in Cincinnati, Atlanta, Charlotte, and other places that I had been around the world. And so when we began to experience the urban life, I began to realize that a lot of people in Baltimore had what I called a Ricky Bobby definition of Jesus. And now some of you are like, who's Ricky Bobby? It was a Will, Will Ferrell character in a movie called Talladega Nights. I'm not condoning the film. I'm not even going to admit that I had watched it. But I, but I know this one quote because I felt it. Because in Baltimore City, everybody loves sweet little baby Jesus. We love sweet little baby Jesus. Sweet little baby Jesus comes out all the time. And people don't mind at work talking to you about the baby Jesus in the major. But when Jesus grew up and became a man, now people struggle. And so there's a, um, a pastor in New York that I um, have kind of been uh, mentored by and encouraged by and discipled alongside with. And he was recently sharing an excerpt from a book. And so it's a book about two characters. And in that book, the characters were talking about another character in the story. And this is when I when I read this, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I began to feel when I was walking around our city. Um, the quote is from Evelyn in the book. It says, Sebastian's faith was an enigma to me at that time, but not one which I felt particularly concerned to solve. The view implicit in my education was that basically the basic narrative of Christianity had long been exposed as a myth. And that opinion was now divided as to whether its ethical teaching was of present value, a division in which the main weight went against it. Religion was a hobby which some people professed and others not. And at the best, it was slightly ornamental. At the worst, it was the providence of um, complexes and hypocrisy and sheer stupidity attributed to it for centuries. No one had ever suggested to me that this quaint observances expressed a coherent philosophic system, 
and transigent historical claims, nor had they done so, or, nor, excuse me, nor had they done so would I have even been interested, much interested. That's what I began to bump up against. I would sit at this little bar called Life of Riley's Irish Pub on East Fairmont Avenue and Washington Street across from Commodore John Rogers Elementary School, and I would sit there, and once word got out that I was a pastor, oh my, did things change. I had people get up from their tables and walk over to me and say, I hear you're a pastor starting a church in our neighborhood. Are you wanting to get rich off of us? I was like... No, but making a living would be nice, but no. But then they began to come up with all other kinds of things. There was one time on a Saturday night, I sat down for dinner with my family, and I got invited to a table outside. And there were at least eight people around this table, and I sat down, and they, and they said, well, tell us about Jesus. And I said, well, I have a feeling you guys want to tell me some stuff about Jesus. And this lady, Kathy, stood up. She didn't stop her sentence for 45 minutes. She went off about everything, about the Bible and pastors and hypocrisy and, and the fact that the, Jesus was a myth and the whole Christianity was doing more harm in the world. And she finally um, sat down, and I was getting ready to finally respond, and this other lady slammed her hand down on the table and said, don't say a word because I've got to go pee. And so she didn't want to miss out on something when she ran to the bathroom. And so that particular conversation began a, uh, just an open door of discourse over all the different things that people believe. So it was in Butcher's Hill that I really began to see some things. And I should have been able to understand a little bit more because my family had a chance to live in Hell's Kitchen, New York, for the end of 2007. Do we have any Hell's Kitchen people here around here? I thought so. Um, and I really enjoyed our time in Manhattan. It was, it's really a fascinating place. If I didn't live in Baltimore, I'd ask the Lord to move me to New York um, or the beach. Um, but uh, one of the things that we had at the end of that time, my, my brother made a very generous gift to our family. He came up to the city, and we went to see the Rockettes. Some of you are like, yeah. yeah. But most people go just to see the leg kicks, right? Um, and so we're watching their Christmas production. And the whole time was just one fascinating scene after another. The music, the room is packed, standing, you know, even people standing along the edges. But as we got to the end of that Christmas production, it became all about Jesus. They brought out sweet little baby Jesus. And they were leg kicking around baby Jesus, but they were doing it in this beautiful worship way, if any of you have ever seen it. And there were people actually standing that were obviously Christians, most likely Pentecostal. I've never seen any Baptists do this, but they were literally in the Rockettes production, like worshiping and swinging. And I'm sitting there moved to tears, but yet the majority of people were sitting in there just like, this is entertainment. This is about a myth. This is about, oh, that's a sweet story that people find hope in at Christmas time, but there's nothing to do with Jesus in any of the aspects of our life. But yet in the Rockettes production, before Santa Claus came out, it was about Jesus. But that's what I'm finding more and more in the people that we bump into, even in Baltimore City 
in the African-American community where I've begun to have a chance to meet more and more people, there's now a distancing away from the reality of the power of Jesus Christ when for centuries it has been the bedrock of their faith and what has gotten them through difficult times. And so even through the diversity of this room, the different continents where we're from, I'm finding more and more people are struggling with the reality of Jesus Christ. How can we get to the place where there's power and beauty and hope and peace and selflessness? How do we get Jesus back into the center of our lives? Because it's even highly likely that many of us in here today think he is, but yet he's really not. And this is really going to be the longest opening um, to a sermon you've probably ever heard. I haven't even gotten to my point yet. But I think it's really important that I say some things that I believe are true that I think you all will agree with me on before we get into some things where you might be like, ah, I don't like the way you interpreted those verses. And I think that the clarity needs to be extreme because when you actually look at the historical Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, who walked the earth with us, that actually died and rose again and now seated and is planning a comeback, right? All of that about Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus evokes change in us. If you know anything about Jesus, I need to remind you, he, he causes change. Jesus is very difficult. There were a lot of people that were following Jesus in his day that walked away from him because what he was saying they needed to do with obedience in their life was difficult. And then he goes on, Jesus not only does that, but he was countercultural in his day and time. And so if we follow after Jesus today, could it possibly mean that he might force us away from some of the cultures of our day? Just look at his birth. It was controversial. He was virgin born to a teenage girl. I mean, that's a fascinating entry story. There was a, um, uh, his sermons were about religion. His sermons were about politics. He had powerful teachings that caused a, a huge amount of disruption in economies and in the way that people thought in the temple as well as in Jerusalem and the areas around the Galilee. He did incredible miracles and then at times did a lot of other things that really excited people. But then when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings, he actually said, love your enemies. And then he told his disciples to do the very same thing. And then he modeled it on the cross because the people that were driving spikes into his flesh, he actually called out for their forgiveness on their behalf while they were still torturing him and, 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 and casting lots over his clothing. I mean, Jesus isn't a little comfortable character that just shows up in a manger and we get to sing some really good happy songs and then go get the gifts that we want. I mean, there's, 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 there's some really strong things if we truly begin to grasp this Jesus that we're seeking to follow. He actually claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So if you think he was just a good teacher, I want you to understand, he actually was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then if we begin to look at this, he actually said, I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies when he was speaking to Jewish audiences. He went on to say that there were, oh, he actually went on to teach things that, that people in the present day were offended by. He taught about money. 
He taught about sex and sexuality. He talked about cleanliness. He talked about marriage. He talked about lust and power. He chose friends that other people despised. All right, now how many of us want to latch onto that? Let's go sit with a guy that's being a friend at the table at lunch that we really don't like. Let's go hang out with him, right? Let's go hang out with the one that's forgiving the people that are insulting him. He also told his disciples that they had to follow him based upon his terms. There were no negotiations. Oh, boy. I mean, if we really go to the red letters of Scripture, we are really going to struggle because most of us want the sweet little baby Jesus, but we don't want the Jesus that demands everything. But I just want you guys to know the next couple of weeks, I am just going to tell you what I believe the Bible has to say about Jesus because I need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of who Jesus was and what it really looks like for us to follow after him. But most of us, if we're honest, we're just happy that we're not going to go to hell, right? We don't care about this life, but then why did Jesus talk so much about this life? We just want to be forgiven of our sins so that we can, because the only thoughts of eternity we have are, are we going to be in heaven or are we going to hell? We don't think about the words that Jesus said about rewards in heaven and treasures being stored up there and things that we need to be considering. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of that. So here's my question. Do we follow Jesus on our own terms? I came across this quote from Tim Keller. And anytime a pastor wants to sound really smart, you quote Tim Keller. (laughs) Here's the quote. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And Lamont goes on to say this, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. We can't have Jesus on our own terms. Now that's going to be a struggle for a lot of us in here because we are so used to own turning, own terms are all of our relationships We have our terms for who the roommates we live with. We have our terms for the type of work environments we're in. We do not have a good, we are not a good society at going with somebody else's terms. But we can't have Jesus on our own terms. Glenn uh, uh, Stassen, I think I'm saying his name properly, says this. It is no overstatement to claim that the invasion of the teachings of Jesus constitutes a crisis of Christian identity and raises the question of who exactly is functioning as the Lord of the church. When Jesus' way of discipleship is thinned down, marginalized or avoided, then churches and Christians lose their antibodies against infection by secular ideologies that manipulate Christians to serve the purposes of some other Lord. We fear precisely the kind of idolatry. We fear this kind of idolatry now. I don't know if you guys are ever familiar with the controversies, but I think this is what we're doing. Um, Thomas Jefferson is notoriously for cutting verses out of the Bible, and this is actually a picture of the Bible that's in a historical society that kind of shows some of the things that he had done with it. And I think we have a photo. We don't, we don't have it. Oh, man. Well, here it is. It's in my notes. You guys can Google it. Not now. You can see it later. But there's actually sections upon pages upon pages of Scripture where they cut verses out. And his goal was to make a gospel that kind of fit what he thought would be easy and got rid of all the stuff that was confusing. 
And when I began to think about that, I'm sitting there thinking, uh, are you confused? Because there's actually a Bible in the um, National Bible Museum in D.C., which I would encourage you guys, if you have a day to go, it will take you longer to go through it than you think. Um, so give yourself more time. But there is a section where there are Bibles that were printed solely for the purpose to condone slavery. Okay, I want you guys to know that. There was a publishing company in Europe that was actually admitting verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament and printing them without them so that people would read the Bible and not be convicted of owning another human being. All right, so I just want you guys to know there's a reason why people don't trust Christianity. There's a reason why people don't trust pastors. And this is what I want to say to us in this room. When you come in this room, I want you to know we're going to put all the verses in there. Whether we like them or not. And there are going to be verses that I don't like. Like I've already told you. Do you guys know what one fruit of the Spirit that I wish could be omitted from the, the Bible? I've said it multiple times. Which one? No, not patience. Perseverance. Obviously, I haven't said it enough. If there is one word that I wish could be omitted from the scriptures, I wish that following after Jesus meant that we just got to go with great joy. There was no resistance. There was everything positive in front of you. But yet what we find is, is that we are called to perseverance. John Stott actually says this. And so if you don't quote Tim Keller, you quote John Stott because Tim Keller quotes John Stott. And so John Stott says this. We must allow the word of God to confront us to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. I'm like, no. I mean, seriously, do you, I mean, if we really listen to John, let me tell you why we don't read the Bible, is John Stott's words. Because you can't read it without powerful conviction. The other, a couple of weeks ago, I, don't, I may have mentioned this to some of you, but the summer was really difficult for my family, and, and I got a morning that was really beautiful and was bearable to be on the roof of our home and our roof deck. And, and I love being up there to catch the morning star before the sunrise, and I talked to the Lord there. And I was reading in the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians was talking about the unity in the body of Christ and, and loving people that are different from you. And then it goes on to say that you are brothers and sisters, and God spoke to me in a moment and said, you need to start treating your wife like she's my daughter. And not treating her like she's your wife. And I'm like, I wanted to, I'm like, I didn't, ha I don't like turn a paper Bible on the roof because it's hard in the wind. But I, so I have my, I just, I'm like, how did, I couldn't get to the off button quick enough, right? I wanted it turned off. I'm like, but the, the Lord, I just said, Lord, what did you say? And he's like, she's my daughter. She's my daughter. And so any posture towards her is a posture towards me. And I can remember sitting across the table from Ginger's earthly father, Jimmy Asimus, at a Hardee's, which I've never been back into since that day. <laughs> and he looked across that table at me upon agreeing to let me marry her. And he just said this. He says, son, he says, listen to me. He says, if you ever hurt her, it will be you and me and mostly me. And I had to use paper towel to clean up my seat. 
I mean, everything. It was just an incredibly powerful moment. But you know what? When I was sitting on the roof and I was trying to overcome in my flesh a way that I was having myself being just dismantled and how I was using words towards my wife, Ginger, and, and things, I just felt like the Lord was saying, let me bring back to your mind a visual illustration of what it's like for you to talk to my daughter and interact with her. And so if you are looking for a faith, Christianity is not comfortable. Christianity is, this, this, Christ is supposed to be formed in us. It's not just something we know. Romans 8, Romans 12, which we don't have time to read today, is all about us being conformed into the image of Jesus, not becoming better versions of ourselves. We're supposed to learn to talk like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, and to begin to see the fruits of Jesus moving forward in the ways that we interact. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis because everybody quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says this, In the same way the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became a man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. It says in the Bible that the whole universe was made for Christ and that everything is to be gathered together in him. Church is supposed to be the mechanism where we figure out what it looks like to look like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, and to follow him along our not-so-merry way. I mean, there's so many pressures that we face, but the world is doing a better job of discipling us than the church is. The world is constantly trying to shape us. The society has these powers And our society in its power says, if you do this, we will reward you. But if you do this, we won't reward you. And we're going to be looking at some things over these next couple of weeks of how so often in our faith, if we're looking at it, we're more concerned about the rewards that are offered to us from the society around us than we are about the rewards that we have in store for us. We are caught in this political correctness world rather than does it honor Jesus. We conform to what social norms say we need to be conforming to versus are we conforming to what Jesus has said. And so we're going to struggle through a lot of that because our society is uh, the normalization of our society, the way that the culture is going, let me just be very frank, is anti-Jesus. So much about what's happening in the world is really anti-Jesus. Now, let me just state this. There are a lot of good things happening in the world that are very much Jesus. There's powerful movements to end slavery of men, women, children all around the world. I mean, that's all about Jesus, right? But yet there's so much about what we do. So now let me finally get to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Let me start with this. Then he called the crowd to him. Uh, He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, now listen to what he says. Like, look, he's now drawing them up close, saying to the crowd and to the disciples, because guess what? As disciples, you need to be reminded that you have to listen as well. We gather a little bit before 9 a.m. with all of our worship team in the back to pray before we come out. And almost every week I remind them that, that you need to listen while you're serving. 
We can't just come and do our task and leave and think everything is for everybody else. And the disciples equally struggled with that. So many of the teachings of Jesus, I could see them being like, well, all right, what time do we collect the offering? You know, or what time are we going to be passing out bread that never ends? You know, I mean, they're just like they could be so distracted and totally not listening to what Jesus was saying. So Jesus is calling the crowd to him and now he's calling the disciples in. And then he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And we just can't unpack that fully. And I love the fact that it is said so frankly. Because this particular verse is all about self-denial. It's all about self-denial. So if we believe in Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, our sins are forgiven. One of the first ways that I step out in obedience of Jesus is denying myself. That means that there might be things that I want for myself that I need to lay before Jesus and say, is this for me? Is this what you want for my life? And so he begins to talk to them. But so much about our culture today is about getting what you want. You sit in front of commercials on television, even though, and you, those of you that try to cheat commercials, and you, you pay for Hulu or whatever, Netflix, and you're trying to watch shows without commercials. The message still gets into us that you need to do what makes you happy. Go be you. Go do what you are designed to do. or just there's, there's so much of it that if there's not a filter of Jesus on it that can be like, yeah, this is really good. I need to go be me. When in actuality, we need to go be Jesus. We need to go be like Jesus. And then hence the tension that we feel in the room today. Because so much of our culture is about you being the best you that you can be. When in actuality, Jesus wants us to be better than that. Our culture is all about self-fulfillment. And if we're not careful, we will not want to deny ourselves. Here's a quote that I came across, too, um, from Sky. Let me read this to you. I won't pronounce the last name because I'll butcher it. But scripture and traditions tell us that formation into the likeness of Christ, also known as spiritual maturity, is not achieved by always getting what we want. It is not a product of seeking immediate gratification. The Apostle Paul compares his pursuit of Christ to competing in a race. It is a focused effort of self-control and discipline. And Peter calls us to supplement our faith with self-control, steadfastness, and to do this with diligence. Traditionally, Christian life has been marked by releasing one's desires and submitting to a spiritual mentor or community and learning to take up the cross and denying oneself. Shepherds guided believers through formative and corrective disciplines, most being activities we would never choose to engage in if left to our own desires. These values are not championed in our consumer culture, and they certainly don't prove popular among church shoppers seeking a comfortable religious experience. But surrounding control and embracing self-denial ensured that believers received what they needed to mature in Christ, not simply what they wanted. My family loves a good movie. Um, it's getting harder to find a movie that people of all ages can watch, right? Just because it says a certain rating doesn't mean that it's necessarily appropriate. And that's my opinion. Some of you are like, what? All movies are good. 
right? It's art. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about Jesus later. Um, but the, there's a movie that we watched called Parental Guidance, and there's a powerful scene where the grandparents show up, and they're not really actively involved in the kids' lives. But in the movie, the kids, the grandparents are like, oh, who cares about your parents' rules? Can I get an amen from some of the grandparents, right? And all of you that have children, and you're like, what? Grandparents, like my, my, my mom and dad showed up one day, like grandparents rule. And I'm like, no, grandparents enforce our parental decisions, all right? But, um, but in the movie, she, this mom comes home, and, the, and the, the grandfather had given them cake and ice cream. And they come into the door, and she's into the cake and ice cream all over her face. And she said, Mom, you lied to me. Yogurt tastes nothing like ice cream. (laughs) But here's the situation. Most of us think this is good for us, right? This is good. Some of you are like, I'm allergic to chocolate. Okay, this is not to be a literal everybody. You get the point. Whatever your sweet tooth takes you to. But many of us, I mean, it's, now let me ask you this. If you take a three-year-old and you place this in there in front of them and they touch it and they taste it. That's my piece, by the way. And then you come over here and you make them chew on kale. Where do you think they're going to spend the rest of their morning? There will be one or two freakish children (laughs) that seem innately wired to choose kale. So my role as a parent is to say to the child, I know this tastes so good, but this is good for you. Our culture is feeding us what tastes good. We want more of it. Give me more of it. Let me get my hands into it. I want to get it. I just want, I want it all the time. I want it all day. Don't put a limitation on it. Let me consume it, right? But here, for those of you that have made the transition to kale, <laughs> do we have any, like, huge, like you are all about the kale in the room here today. Are there any of you that would be willing? Yes. There's usually at least one in a room this size. When my daughter podcasts this later, she's going to be saying, Dad, that was your best sermon ever. Because she has somehow transitioned to where I'll pull out a slice of cake and she'll be like, oh, I want something good too. And she'll go and make a salad of kale. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? But yet what she's realized is is that the effects of this on her system, especially with her biological makeup, this will hurt her for hours afterwards, even though it tastes good. But yet she's realized that she has changed her taste buds to something that, that lasts a little longer, that brings her a nourishment that's different. And so self-denial means so many times that we have to ask ourselves, is, this, is it good for you? It's not just is it good, but is it good for you? C.S. Lewis also said this, and I couldn't cut it out of my notes. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. He says, I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Now that's, again, 
we want to be a church that feels good. We want to be a church where you can come. But we don't want this to be the next hookup culture. Right? We don't want it just to be a place where guys and girls can come together and think, okay, Jesus, but who's hot? Right? It's like it's got to be Jesus, and then let's begin to work out the other things. And so we are not here because it's always what tastes good. We're here because it's what's good for us. Exercise is really good for you. Like I said last week, but if you just watch the videos, it really doesn't do you any good, right? We've got to discipline ourselves to get in. All right, so let me move on. Verse 35. The first part is, is that the self-denial. The second part, verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples about things that have eternal value. So he's talking about self-denial. Now he's talking to them about eternal value. And this is what I want to say about this. Somehow we've got to start getting our eyes a little bit farther down the road. We've got to see what's over the horizon. Like, what am I doing today that is going to be beneficial for all eternity? I can't just say, well, what's good for today? Now, some of you, I know that our different personalities are wired differently, and some of you are incredible planners, and others of you don't plan, you know, but more than half of the day because you want to keep your options open. And so it's not a personality test here, but it is a, in this decision, does this have any impact on the future? Does this have any impact on eternity? Because what we experience here in this life, which we're going to be learning about a lot in the next couple of weeks, is that this is temporal. Jesus referred to what we are going through as temporary, as painful as it might be. What you and I are experiencing is temporary. And there will be an eternal reward if we are disciplining ourselves to be focused on that. A lot of us, we're going to go to church all our life. and we get to heaven, it's going to be like this candle. It's going to be like, okay, wow, I labored all my life for this. And then others of you... You're going to get to heaven and you're going to see just piles and piles of reward. And let me just tell you this. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. But most of us don't have an eternal focus. We want to know what we can amass now and then die and leave it to somebody else. But Jesus says that if you follow after me, then you are going to have an eternal perspective. You're not just going to be thinking about the here and now. Um, Let me read to you this quote. Um, Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often swallows us whole. Its beauty, its power, and promises generally take away both our breath and our perspective. The lore of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has for the most part entertained, amused, distracted, and a number us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short-range soteriology, where talk and concern centers around money, food and entertainment, sports, sex, and health. That's what we generally just talk about. There is little sense that the earth is ablaze with the fire of God, and even less that one should approach God, even in formal prayers in the churches, Oh, excuse me, I jumped this part here. Even less the sense that one should have his shoes off before it. 
in our normal consciousness, wherever we approach God, even in formal prayer and in our churches, it is, it is with very measured expectations. The God who is met in the measured expectations of our own desires and imagination dies in his own impotence and irrelevance. That's why I could sit at Life of Riley's and be grilled for hours because most people think uh, Jesus is just a myth because we don't believe in the power of eternity. Why do you think in Jesus' teaching he says to the rich young ruler, let me make a trade with you? He's really offering him a trade. He's like, how about you cash in all of your temporal stuff and I'm going to give you something eternal? Eternal perspective can help us get through anything. And I truly believe that's what gets us through anything. It helps us get through the death of people that have been close to us. It helps us get through the death of 20-year-old cancer victims. It helps us get through the death of job losses and frustrations and ridicule and all this, our eternal perspective helps us get through all of the pressures in life that we face. That's why so much of Paul's writings to the church in Rome, to the church in Galatia and Ephesus were about things eternal. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually said to his disciples, let the dead bury the dead. And I've always struggled with that. And it sounds kind of harsh, right? I mean, again, like I said, Jesus didn't just make it easy. But recently, can I be honest with you as a pastor? I have struggled because in the last 10 years, we have poured out, we've poured out, we've poured out, we've poured out. But because of the nature of the city and the spiritual battle, my prayer to God is, God, when are you finally going to bring the harvest? When are we finally going to see explosive growth? When are we finally going to see people coming in mass numbers because I've seen it happen in other places and other parts of the country. I've seen pastors go from a year to five years and go from like 50 people in a core group to 5,000 people in 10 years. And I'm sitting here thinking, Father, we just, every year we keep losing so many people and we just can't get momentum and, and we're constantly changing. And I felt the Lord in my spirit this summer as I've been weeping through Acts chapter 9 and just asking God for a season of peace and a season of rest from the, tor- the turmoils of this world and just a season of feeling like life is good and ministry is moving, I felt like that God was saying, no, your life will be hard because the work that I've called you to is hard work. I need you to stay after hard work. I mean, I've, in recent years, I've been offered some really nice jobs in places that were much easier than Baltimore. And the only reason why I'm still here is because I do know this is what God wants for me. So there's a part of me that would love to be pastoring near a beach. Not the beach. Here. We got a nice little one now, right? Down there in Little Harbor East. You ever been down there? It's nice. Yeah. But that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. That doesn't cut it. That gets you through a night. But joy doesn't come in the morning there. <laughs> but I'm learning that my eyes need to be on eternity. And would I continue to do this if the harvest never truly seemed to come? So let me move on now to verse 38. If anyone is ashamed, let me stop here. Okay, self-denial, eternal perspective. 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with his holy angels. That's what caused Lee to say, wow, after she read the scriptures. Because can I tell you this? Even as an adult, 45 years of age, rejection hurts. Because of some of the decisions our elders have made in the last few years in our church family, and we've began, you've seen women teaching from our stage, and we're going to talk about that on September 30th, but there are people in denominations that think women should be silent and not have any role in the church and any levels of leadership. And some of the friends and people that have been around me have strong convictions about that. And I went through about almost a two-year period of time where I almost lost all of my pastor friends because either they didn't agree with me or they were too concerned that they would have to make a stand publicly on what they believe. And so they distanced themselves from me so they wouldn't have to join into the conversation that I was starting about how God, in the power of the Spirit in Acts 2, fell on both men and women. And how God was using men and women to do an incredible thing in the church. And a lot of people said, that stinks. I want to be anything around you, right? And it hurt to feel that rejection. It still hurts, even thinking about it right now, of brothers in Christ that I've been walking with that no longer call me anymore. Rejection to all of us hurts. But in Luke 6, 22, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and they insult you and reject, you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. This is what will turn most of you away from following after Jesus. Most of you will be inspired in a teaching like this to say, I'm going to start practicing self-denial. I am going to start to have an eternal focus. And let me tell you this, you will start to be rejected by people for being a religious Jesus freak or a fanatic or something else. And the people that used to welcome you to the water cooler at work will no longer stay at the water cooler when you walk up. The people that used to seek you out for comedy and humor in the office or in the workplace will no longer seek you out. You will stop getting invited to happy hour. You'll stop getting invited to certain things. Not because you are necessarily acting like an obstinate jerk or whatever, which I hope not. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But just because you start to talk and live like Jesus, people are not going to want to be around that. Because our culture says, feed yourself, feed yourself, feed yourself, here's your reward. And you're sitting there saying, no, I need to deny myself, deny myself, deny myself, because I'm going to have a future reward. People are like, no, 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 I want the instant gratification. I want what's mine. And you're like, no, 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 let's, let's do something for others. Like, you know what? Wow, you got a comma added to your paycheck this year. You have more to give. What? I don't have more to give. I got to buy, buy something bigger. I got to build a second silo. And some of you are like, what are you bringing that up for? It's a teaching of Jesus we'll get to at another point. <laughs> but it's hard to deal with rejection Bob Serge says this, those who fear the rejection of man have a deep yearning for the praise of men. Let me say that again. Those who fear the rejection of man have a deep yearning for the praise of man and set their souls up for repetitive heartache. The response to that pain is expressed in anger. That's why the scriptures say the fear of man brings a snare. 
As long as we're seeking the acceptance of man, we're making ourselves vulnerable to the rejection of man. If man's acceptance will build you up, man's rejection will devastate you. So if you are looking to get all of your affirmation from the people to your left or to your right or to the people you're looking towards, if you're following after Jesus, that is a cup that will never stay full. The only way that you and I are going to walk around as full people is when you and I allow the Father and the Son and the Spirit to be the one that shapes and fills us. The Father's acceptance is the most important acceptance. And I'm not saying earthly father. This is not a capital F father. This is our God in heaven. Knowing in your heart and in your mind that your father in heaven is pleased with you, there is no better filling of your cup that can counteract the rejection of this world when people stop inviting you to the after work stuff. We must have a deep sense of the Father's acceptance. I love what Henry Nouwen said when he said this. First of all, you have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is. Manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and in the long run destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are. And you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they might be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity and held safe in an everlasting belief. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, do we want the approval of our Father in heaven that perfectly loves us? Or are we going to constantly be distracted by a world that only loves us when we do the things that they choose to reward us for? Here's my closing thoughts. What does this mean for us? The first thing is this. We have to be willing to follow Jesus. Not me. I want to be able to say to you, and this is what I'm trying to do this month, as well as with other leaders in our church families, that say, follow us. We're following Jesus. And we want it to be very clear to you that we're following Jesus. Because we don't need to be another church where a pastor just leads people astray. We don't need to be a place where it's all about something else other than Jesus. That's not what we're shooting for. We want it to be about Jesus. And so if it ever is about Ellis's opinion or Ellis thinks we should go here or there, if it doesn't line up with Jesus, you have permission to say that doesn't line up with Jesus. Because that is my responsibility is to lead us to a church that invests in people to mature us, not to be like me, God forbid, but is to be like the life-giving Emmanuel that came into the world to be fully present with the people around us. But here's what happens. If you say you want to be a follower of Jesus, these are two things that you're agreeing to from this moment forward. Surrender and repentance. It could be as simple as you today coming up here and being like, my whole life has been about iced cookies. I am all about my gratification. And today is the first day that I am going to choose 
to nourish my life in something else. It has to be about what's offered to us from our Father's table. Maybe today your prayer, as we get ready to come to the table, and our prayer as we begin to move towards a benediction of clothes is, Father, have I reduced Jesus to my own image? Have I, and maybe that's, that's a sweet prayer for us today. Have I made Jesus into my image? Father, show me how I've made him into a mascot or focus solely on the sweet little baby Jesus. Father, strengthen me. Maybe this could be your prayer. Father, strengthen me. Let me make the truth that Jesus is my Lord a actual part of my life. Because we can have a verbal language of faith without any practice, right? People all the time can go around quoting things that they've been taught about Jesus. But actually doing it, now that's a sweet aroma, right? That's something that is precious when you actually begin to see it in people. So maybe, God, is, is Jesus my Lord? Is he a part of my life? So not only as we end, do we, have we, do we have to have a willingness to follow Jesus, but we also must start to do ministry like Jesus. And this, are, this is how we're going to set up the next couple weeks because we are going to have moments of great disagreement. And I want you to know I'm okay with that. I want us to work through it. This is not a time for us to say, uh, well, I don't like what you said, so I'm not leaving. No, let's stay in it for a little bit. Let's let the tension maybe lead us to self-evaluation. And are we really following after Jesus? If at the end of this month we, we talk and you're like, no, that is not the Jesus I believe, then that's fine. Let's talk through that. If that's what it is, then let's help you find a place that you believe that you can find your Jesus. But we just need to make sure that it's not your Jesus or it's not my Jesus, but it's actually the Jesus, right? We've got to make sure it's not into our image. But Jesus did most of his ministry out of deep conviction but incredible compassion. There are religious fanatics that are all conviction, no compassion. But there are also a lot of churches that are all compassion and no conviction, and so we're going to work through that. 1 Peter 3.8, which is a verse that we've used in our small group life here for, for the last couple of years, is finally all of you be like-minded. What do we need to be like-minded in? Say his name. Jesus Christ. There is only one place that you and I need to be like-minded. Because if we are like-minded in Jesus Christ, we are going to be on the same page in every other aspect of life. If we agree on Jesus then we're going to walk in step with one another. Be sympathetic. That means if we say something to hurt one another, we, we, we're patient. We understand where each other might be coming from, experiences we may have had, people, influences in our life, maturity, thoughts, process, all the different things. We consider it because we're being sympathetic to one another. And then at the end of the day, we're going to outlove one another. I don't, if you disagree with me, I want you to walk away saying, you know what, I don't necessarily agree with how Ellis interpreted that, but I'll tell you what, there's no doubt in my mind that Ellis loves me. That, I think, is honoring of Jesus Christ. We also need to be compassionate, and I've always heard compassion is love in action. Like, it's one thing for me to say, well, you know, Andrew, man, he broke his legs, too bad for Andrew. But the other thing is, is, okay, let me show up, let me cut his grass. Well, we don't have grass. Let me, let me... 
let me take out his trash. Let me go to the grocery store for him. Let me do these things, right? We do those things because I see the need, so therefore I'm compassionate to go meet the need. That's what needs to be. And then there needs to be a spirit of humility. I want that to be what you feel from the stage. I want that to be what you feel in our worship, but I want that to be what we feel across the aisle when we talk to one another, is that we need to have the conviction and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Our church, I love this. This is James Smith. He actually says this. Christian worship is one of the primary arenas in which we participate in the practices that shape who we are. So this morning was an exercise in shaping us in who we are. If our worship simply mimics the disciplinary practices and goals of a consumer culture, we will not be formed otherwise. Convincing of the church as a disciplinary society aimed at forming human beings to reflect the image of Christ, we will offer an alternative society to the hollow formations of late modern culture. I alluded to this just a minute ago. We are craving relationships, but this cannot be a Christian tinder. This can't be a place where we are just looking for a safe place to meet people. That's not what the church was designed for. That is an outcome of a healthy church environment, is knowing you're next to a brother and sister that loves you and has no inkling of hurt or harm that they want to fall upon you. But the purpose of the church is for our maturity in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the church is for you to be confronted about things that we need to ask God to forgive us for. We need him to shape us. We need to come with a posture that I'm not perfect. And today I might get a chance of having a revelation given to me that I'm not perfect. And now I can begin to walk out more like Jesus this Sunday. That's what happens in church. That's what happened in our small group life. But here's how a small group conversation goes. Two of you are sitting on a sofa on one side of the room saying, you know, uh, you know, ABC, John Smith over there, um, you know, we know that we need to have a conversation with him about the choices he's making. And you look at each other like, okay, who's going to do it? No, 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 that's not me. I, I don't have a relationship with him enough to have that conversation. And the other person's like, well, I don't either. Well, we both see it. Well, why don't we just let our brother drown? Right? That's what there's a, there's a proverb that drives me crazy. He's a wise old man sitting in a window, and he's watching a youth walk down the street towards basically a a, a harlot house. I mean, uh, he's heading towards sexual temptation beyond his wildest imagination. He's up there like commentating, like, man, the man's turning the corner. He's walking towards this place where the women are going to take advantage of him and destroy him, and he's going to ruin his soul. And I'm sitting here saying, old man, get out of the window. Run down to the street and grab a hold of this young man and say to him, you don't want to go down this way. You don't want to do these things. But the problem is, is that in the church, at best, maybe 25% of you would receive that from a pastor, but not one of you would want to receive that from somebody else sitting in the room. We have got to mature. We have been given gifts. We need to use them. We need to help watch out for one another. Because at the end of the day, it's about Jesus. It's about the image of Jesus. It's about the power of Jesus. It's about the resurrected life of Jesus. And we've got to get to the point where we engage in each other's lives, even if it feels confrontational. And that's why I'm saying this month, there's going to be a lot about what we talk about that could feel confrontational. But it is not designed for us to be in conflict. 
It is not designed for us to step away from one another, but it is designed to step deeper into love with one another. That's why we call it a covenant family. We have to have this deep covenant, this deep love, this devoted to one another language that's taking place in the New Testament as a part of our church family. Paul constantly told the early church, be devoted to one another. That did not mean just show up for church once a month. Twice a month, once, you know, I know with our jobs, you can't be here all the time. I'm not saying that's not an indictment on our church attendance. But if the only thing we're doing to mature our faith is showing up here, we are doing so little to mature our faith. At best, it's like going to Best Buy and buying an exercise video with the hope that you might actually do it. What we need is a church that actually goes and does the exercises and we begin to mature and grow because we want to be devoted to one another. We don't want to have the sofa conversation. No, you go do it. No, you go do it. Let's go do it together. It's going to be hard. It's going to be awkward, but that guy does know we love him. Now, let's begin to talk through that. So today, we need to follow Jesus fully, devoted and all in. Let's pray. Father, as we try to come to the end of this teaching on Mark 8. Um, Father, it's really laying a foundation for all of the hard discussions we have coming up. Father, we want our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We want to know the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Father, we are so inundated by culture and discipled by the culture. We are now saying we want to be a church that has its own culture in Jesus Christ. Help us to develop a culture that looks like the kingdom of heaven. Help us to develop a relationship, Father, where we don't view each other as anything less than brothers and sisters to the most high God. And so, Lord, would we continue to learn to walk in that way and help us to shed the things of this world so that we can walk fully in your power and in your presence. We pray this in Christ's name.